Welcome to Conversation Mill. Join me as I talk to individuals stepping out to pursue their passions, from small business owners to community leaders, and learn with me how we can work together to support our local communities and local economies. Visit conversationmill.com to learn more, but now please join us in conversation. Hawaii Land Trust's mission is to protect and steward the lands that sustain Hawaii and to perpetuate Hawaiian values by connecting people with the Aina. Scott Fisher is Hawaii Land Trust Director of Aina Stewardship. Hawaii Land Trust's mission is to protect and steward the lands that sustain Hawaii, and to perpetuate Hawaiian values by connecting people with the Aina. Scott Fisher is the Hawaii Land Trust Director of Aina Stewardship. Hawaii Land Trust was created in 2011 when four island land trusts merged. Collectively, what was formerly four land trusts, now protected over 21,000 acres, which includes public coastlines, native ecosystems, and cultural landscapes. As passionate as I am about thriving local economies, I have that same passion for the preservation of our natural world. Without protecting coastlines, our beaches are washed away. Without healthy soil, our food loses nutrition or simply does not grow at all. Without grazing lands, we lose herds of wild game. Without native trees, we lose population of native birds. Without maintaining the landscapes above our oceans, rivers, and streams, we pollute the habitat of our sea life and freshwater fish. As Kelly King reminded us in episodes 7 and 8 this season, caring for the land is caring for people. Scott drives this lesson home by sharing with us how the Native Hawaiians cared for and respected the land. Join us now in conversation to learn how Hawaiian values, if applied across a range of relationships, can preserve the earth, which is the island we all call home. Let's start with this. If you could share with us a little bit of your background, a little of your biography. Yeah. Certainly, certainly. Um, okay, so I guess where where to start? Um, I was born and raised here on Maui. Um, I grew up in the uh, Ahupua of Omaupio, which is in uh, in Kula. Uh, when I was seventeen, I ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps, um, and I was in the infantry and fought in the first Gulf War in the nineteen ninety one Gulf War, um, and in that experience. Um, uh, I was in the infantry for those probably who don't recall um, a lot of oil was dumped into the, the Persian Gulf and the uh, a lot of oil fires were set on and it was sort of like an environmental wasteland. Mm. And that made me incredibly concerned about the future. And so my, when I, when I was discharged from the Marine Corps, I went on to um, back to college, not back to college. I'd not been to college, but, uh, studied a number of things, including my first semester spent studying essentially Hawaiian studies, um, taking a number of courses in Hawaiian studies to kind of better understand the culture I grew up in 
and then eventually went off to the mainland and um, studied in Australia as well and got my PhD in peace studies. Uh, I got my master's degree and my PhD in peace studies. My PhD looked at how conflicts are resolved uh, in indigenous contexts as they relate to natural resources and the environment. Okay. And so that kind of led me to where I'm at now. And so in starting in 2003, October of 2003, I started with the uh, what was then the Maui Coastal Land Trust. Maui Coastal Land Trust in 2011 merged to become the Hawaii, actually at the time it was the Hawaiian Islands Land Trust. And then recently we changed our name to the Hawaii Land Trust. And so right now my position is Director of Aina Stewardship. And Aina, of course, means land. Mm -hmm. um, so I am in charge of um, all of our properties. And we have about 23,000 acres across Kapai Aina, across the archipelago, the stewardship on those lands. Now in practice, the majority of my work is focused on a few uh, refuges that we own, uh, that we own it. And so therefore we actually um, have to put all the management effort into that. Um, much of the land that we protect are in what are known as conservation easements, which is just an agreement between a land trust and a land owner to um, protect, perpetually protect the land. Um, so I also have a graduate degree in ecological restoration and sustainable agriculture. And so, you know, that's kind of my academic background. I'm actually working on a second PhD right now where I'm looking at how to design native forests to protect mm. against coastal inundation uh, through tsunamis and storms. So very much enjoy the learning and the learning process. So yeah. um, and that, you know, I've been with the land trust now a little over well, almost 19 and a half years. Uh, and so it's just been wonderful. The Hawaii Land Trust is uh, a local statewide conservation organization. Our mission is to protect the lands that sustain us uh, for, for both current and future generations and to uphold Hawaiian values. So we are very much, um, very much want to identify the values that perpetuated uh, people here for well over a thousand years. Um, yeah. And in, in doing so, really understanding the dynamics of sustainability. And so right now, I also teach at the University of Hawaii, um, Maui College, a course called Tradition and Sustainability. Mm. And so that is a course that we look at uh, how our kupuna, our ancestors, met the challenges of of sustainability at different phases in different times. Yeah. What were these agricultural practices that that sustained us? What were the um, the insights and the observations? What in Hawaiian is known as kilo. How are those observations related to mm. um, creating a sustainable society? And not only that, but also you know, so that's the kind of the historical side of the class. But then we also project out what are our main challenges now? How do we address those challenges now? Those challenges of sustainability. So one other, I guess, biographical piece of information is I also have a an ulu farm, okay. um, a breadfruit farm. Yeah. Um, so breadfruit being a, uh, a very important staple mm -hmm. uh, in the Hawaiian diet, I just really love that's kind of my my love yeah um, when i'm out well i i love what i do absolutely love what i do and i love the people i work with they are phenomenal uh but uh really when i'm out in my ulu farm it's just another uh, joy and so i i mainly again i almost exclusively but not i mean i'm on other islands as well but i work mostly on maui um, for those who are interested, uh, they can check out our, our website, hilt.org, mm -hmm. but they can see our lands that we protect. And I, so I mostly work out at Nu'u, which is in the district of Kaupo on Maui, uh, south 
east coast of Maui, but I also work at Waihei, our other uh, uh, refuge in on that's on the northwest coast of Maui. So, yeah. Can I jump back in your biography? Yeah. And I want to ask you about being in the Gulf War, and you mm. mentioned the environmental wasteland that mm-hmm. you saw. Can you describe if it's not uh, uncomfortable for mm, you? No. Do you mind describing some of that? Because I think we're so desensitized to things because we've seen things in movies or we just kind of close our eyes to things we don't want to know. And I think to hear it from somebody is so important. So what were the things that you saw or breathed in or what what was it that made you go, oh my God, I have to go home and do something? Yeah. So really, I mean, I I think you can, there's a whole range of things and they kind of, you know, lasted the whole time that we were in Kuwait because that was when uh, in, in that particular conflict we were uh getting the iraqis out of kuwait um that was the goal and so as the iraqi army was retreating from kuwait and they were uh, blowing up all of the oil fields and Mm. so um i spent the night in the awafra oil fields and i counted around me it was kind of like we were in the middle of it or on the edge of it kind of middle edge um and i could count over a hundred burning oil fires and just this black um almost n- n- nighttime landscape in the, in the middle of the day where it was just dark and mm-hmm. soot was coming down all, on us. And um, it, it really was a kind of a dystopian vision of what our world would be like. And so that was the first like shocking wow. eye opener. Uh, the animals, you know, that were in the area, not a lot of wildlife, but there were wild camels and they were, um, just covered in this black filth. Um, and so that was these oil fires. Uh, I don't know the total number of oil fires in like all of the, um, but you know, the Alwafra oil field where I was, was just one of several. The Bergan oil field was burning. And, and so they, it, it took, it took months, if not even years to actually put all these oil fires back out. So um, that was the, sort of the first experience, sort of the, the eye opener. The second though, is after we had, after the basically the war was over, the peace was declared. Um, we traveled back down along the, uh, the the road between Kuwait City and and Saudi Arabia, mm. and you're really along the coast. And you know, as a person who grew up on an island, you look towards the ocean, and the ocean is your um, it, it grounds you. You know, it, it really is. It's it's kind of like it, it's not home, obviously, but it's it's what gives you your parameters on an island. And mm-hmm. so, looking at the ocean, and it was just this filthy soup of black tar oil just a like again dystopian is really the only word that comes to mind because this was a human this is a person a, and a group of people it wasn't just one person who did right. this this is not one vandal this is this is a a an attempt to this is what some people believe is an appropriate way i suppose to protect their uh or to to uh, treat their 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 land and for me, um, there, there's an olelo noeau in in Hawaiian, a proverb, and that proverb is Heliika'aina hekawa ke kanaka. The the land is the chief, and people are the servants. And that's you know maybe that wasn't explicitly said all the time in my house, but it was definitely the in the house I grew up in. Uh, that was definitely the underlying motive. The the land is 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 sacred, and you you abuse it at your own peril. And so that resonated with me. And so it, it really made me come away with a desire to, to try and do something with what remained of my life. 
to make it better, to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to undo what we, the, the, the anthropogenic problems that we've had. So mm-hmm. I can, I, I don't have absolute, um, you know, I'm not uh, that capable, but I can do my part. Yeah. Uh, and so the, just the vision of the ocean, the sea, as the waves were rolling in along the, along the Persian Gulf was just shocking. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. that again, so I, I went on my, my master's degree really focused on Hawaiian strategies of peacemaking. It was also another right. ma- master's degree. So I looked at Ho'oponopono, like, how do we, how do we get along with one another? I mean, it was, it was a tragedy on an environmental, but it was also a human tragedy because the people that we captured, we captured many prisoners and those prisoners were, um, not they were victims as much as all of us were, as much as the land was. And so um, really the, it blurred the distinction between, you know, perpetrators, victims, and uh, and who, of course, suffered the most was the land right. and, and the individuals. So that's that was my experience there. Um, and just come away with that experience with a commitment to find meaning in that experience. Mm-hmm. And the meaning that I, in that experience was that I actually have agency and I can do my part. I'm not gonna solve it individually, and, but I'm always, uh, just wanna point out, you know, this, this young generation I work with, everyone, oh my gosh, they are so motivated and so passionate. I, I deal a lot with students, of course, mm-hmm. not only my in my class, but it's inspiring, uh, really inspiring, so. Let's dig, let's dig into that Hawaiian values piece of caring for the land and the land will care for you. Yeah. Tell me where to start with that. Yeah, like yeah, where, yeah. where's the source? Where I do always we- love starting with Olelo Noiao because Olelo Noiao proverbs um, really kind of, they, they're, they're pithy summarizations of the values that are, sometimes values can be somewhat, you know, diffuse. Right. But if you can actually put it into a statement, and you heard me say, the land is the chief, um, people are the servants. So really, that structures how you uh, relate to the world. The yeah. world is not ours for to use, it's ours to care for. Mm. And of course, we have kuleana, we have responsibilities for those generations um, that come after us. The other olelo noyao that I like to, uh, I, I always like to point out is hulina limaika lepo maona kaopu, which is basically hulina limaika lepo, turn your hands into the soil and maona kaopu, uh, your, your stomach will be, you'll be well fed, mm. your stomach will be full. And that's, you know, obviously has agricultural um, implications or intonations. Ultimately though, what it is, is you, by just healing the land, by turning your hands into the soil, by pilina ika by becoming close to this to the land, you will care for that land, and for generations it will be, uh, it will it will care for you. And so mm-hmm. it's that that relationship. It's always that relationship. Yes, use the resources because you're part of nature. Yeah. But at the same time, you have a responsibility to just quite simply leave the land better than you found it. Mm-hmm. So when, if you can give us some historical context, maybe I, I think is helpful, that connection with the land, when did that start to get lost here, mm-hmm. right? Because there there was yeah. a time where it, it, it the native traditions mm-hmm. s- started to be lost. Can you give right. us some context? Yeah, there? absolutely. So let's, I mean... <laughs> 
I don't want to go too far afield, but yeah. let's, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. So the first people arriving here, um, arrived here in the Hawaiian Islands around 950. That's what all the archaeological evidence points to. And they brought with them a suite of about 31 species of, of plants and trees and crops. Some were valuable for different reasons. Some seemed to have been like kind of accidental insertions, like maybe there's a seed there. Uh, oh, or sure. Accidentally carried. Um, and th that those people were island people. And so... I, I don't want to make a stark contrast, but I oftentimes will raise this, that there is a continental paradigm and then there is an island paradigm. And mm -hmm. a continental paradigm looks to the land and just sees nothing but land and just, oh, it's all mine for the taking. And then there's an island paradigm that says, careful, you are bounded by limits. And that's why I think our paradigm is now shifting. We've had, unfortunately, globally, I think we've had um, a... Uh, continental paradigm for, for a very, very long time. And, mm -hmm. and now we're trying to say, wait, Earth, island, there's no place else to go. And island people have been saying that for millennia. So that first group of people who arrived here uh, really built up that connection to the land. They were coming from Hawaii, the ancestral homeland of all the Polynesians. So all Polynesians look to Hawaii, that ancestral homeland. Mm. And that seems to be the islands of Samoa, Tonga, and a little tiny island called Niue. It's the what, where the linguistic and archaeological evidence points to. And so they carried with them a suite of crops, animals for to practice animal husbandry, uh, but they also brought with them a mindset. And that mindset was we have to take care, we have to malama, we have to take care. And, you know, there was a lot of anthropogenic change. You, you cannot look at the, the historical record, uh, the archaeological record in Hawaii and say that things remain the same. People, this is what people do. They, they, they modify their environments to suit them. Right. But it doesn't mean that it has to necessarily be unhealthy. It doesn't have, doesn't have to lead to de uh, degradation. Fast forward several hundred years, there was a chief on the island of Oahu uh, by the name of Maili Kukahi. And Maili Kukahi, as the Mo'olelo, as the stories go, uh, noticed very early on that the rate of environmental degradation was going to set us on a path. And this is something we have to kind of keep in mind, that our, our ali'i are kind of our they're the ones who guide us. They're our eyes and ears. They can't be self-serving. They have to be heali'i uh, maikai. They have to be the good chief. And so the good chief is the one who uses their compassion for all people, uh, the ali'i, the maka'inana, the commoners, um, for all people in order to set out a vision that everybody can thrive. So back to this uh, chief Maili Kukahi uh, on Oahu, he noticed that there was severe degradation. And so he came up with this idea of what's, what is now generally referred to as the Moku Ahupua'a concept. So all islands uh, in Hawaiian and Mokupuni are bounded by water, by definition. Right. right? So Mokupuni is, a, is, a, is an island. But then what you do is you take the island and you, and you divide it into kind of wedge-shaped parcels. If you think of a piece of pie with the, the apex of the island of the, of the volcano being the narrowest part and then it fans out to the, down to the ocean. Now, sometimes they'll say, you know, mountain to sea, but it's really, you have to keep in mind, it's not just down to the beach. It's beyond the beach, out into the lipo, that area of transition where the shallow water transitions into the deep water. That was your moku and then subdivisions of there, uh, of, of the, of the uh, uh, moku or the ahupua'a. Literally, ahupua'a means a pig altar, but it's the location where, um, where 
you know, natural resources would be collected by the chief at a particular time of year. And so those Ahupua, um, there seem to be about 212 um, Ahupua on Maui, and there were a total of 12 moku. Okay. Um, so where we are right now, where we are sitting is the moku of Wailuku, and we are happen to be in the Ahupua'a of Wailuku. If I go about a mile from where I'm sitting, I would be in the moku of Wailuku in the Ahupua'a of Waiehu. So um, all of those moku reached one particular apex on where we are right now was um, the apex of that, of those moku was uh, Pu'ukukui, that's a little uh, hilltop uh, at the very summit of the volcano. On Haleakala side, it is a hill called Pohakupalaha. So all those all those uh, moku reached up to the top. And so it was the responsibility, the kuleana of all the people who lived in the moku, but more importantly in the Ahupua, to care for the land from the very summit all the way down into the ocean. And this is the amazing thing is that, our, you know, we've known that Moku Ahupua system works remarkably well. It just, it, it's productive. People um, are uh, thriving in those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I work in Madagascar and, you know, I, I, I there were kind of talking about the problems that, that that country faces. And I was just like, what you guys need is a, a Moku Ahupua system. I mean, I was being a little facetious, but really it, it, the people were 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 vai vai. They were wealthy um, in their in their own material way. Um, uh, because you have to care exactly. from the top to the bottom, and so if you're stewarding the land at the top, you have to be aware of what all the consequences <sighs> down. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it just it works kind of by to a certain extent by gravity, right? Mm-hmm. If you destroy your upland forest because you're negligent. It silts up your streams. You silt up your streams. You silt up your your uh, nearshore reef ecosystems. Your your koa in the nearshore areas, and so those uh, those papakoa had to be protected. And so you had a vested right because there was, in a sense, you were kind of bounding yourself with an island. There's no place else to go. Yeah. You mismanage your ahupua. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Not, nobody's going to be like, oh yeah, come come with me and you know come over to my ahupua so you can de- degrade it as well. In other words, you had to be demonstratively uh, caring for your land at all times. And then was that creating, then that was also the circular economy in the sense of if you were living at the shore, Mm. you were fishing and then someone was trading fish up the mountain and kind of building in that. There's many ways and and it really depended on the the particular area, but um, either it was uh, people harvesting marine resources and would trade with them in the upland areas and and vice versa, um, uh, or uh, they they actually physically practiced what anthropologists call transhumance. And transhumance is just moving physically from one Mm. spot to another. Um, And that practice was done in Waihei up until, really up until the 7th of December, 1941, when the military declared martial law and kept everybody from the shoreline. I mean, in some areas that practice continued up until uh, 1941. And so to kind of get back to your question, like how, what were the sequence of events? And so, you know, if you look at the, 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 the trajectory of Hawaiian history, you have this, you know, this arrival, people arriving, and then they're developing their own unique culture. So like Ma'ili Kukahi with the Ahupua, they're also developing things like fish ponds. So mm. only in, in Hawaiian are known as Loko'ia, 
Only in Hawaii do you have all of Oceania, Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, only in Hawaii do you have uh, the development of fish ponds. Not only did they develop four, and it's like something that Gosh, you'd just be so proud of. Um, because yeah. they were they were they made the the land, the the they made the people, the Aina Mamona, they the the people like literally the fat lands. And so um Aina Mamona was what you strive for. But mm-hmm. Aina Mamona, the it literally mean does mean fat land. It also means sweet land. Um mm-hmm. Mamona is a uh, has has numerous meanings, but it, it was the land that that produced for you, and that's because you cared for it. So, you know, these fish ponds were just remarkable, probably somewhere over 300, well over 300 fish ponds, probably we've lost some erosion has covered some up. And so we don't know all of them, but you know, for every acre of fish pond, you can produce around 200 pounds of, of fish. And that is a resource that can be gone back to and, and, and managed properly can provide for the people. Um, in addition to that, you know, think about an acre of lo'ikalo um, mm-hmm. can produce. Now, this number varies a lot by area, and and some people can you know do more and some some less. But around twenty five thousand pounds is when I talk to taro farmers, they're like, yeah, we can get that. Now, you're never harvesting for all that. Right. You're not harvesting to the max. Uh, you're not you know you're not maximizing your your harvest. What you're doing is you're always taking what you need. And it's again, it's a mentality. If I say that's what you can produce, that's not what they were producing because you take what you need. Mm. Um, and so the really you can kind of see uh, a, a series of events. Uh, one of which was more endogenous. It was kind of began. It was these chiefs who sometimes maybe were swaying away or swerving away from their values of caring for the land. And so, between 1702 and 1802, you had 41 major battles. Mm-hmm. And these are these are from chiefs who were um, trying to generally trying to conquer land um, in order to provide for them. Now, there are a lot of historical reasons for that, including the the uh, what's known as the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age um, dried out the landscape. Mm. Uh, so you have less rainfall. And so these chiefs, the role of a chief is to provide for her or his people. And that's what the chief does. If you are going through a major drought in any given area in Hawaii, every 21 years you have a major drought. But if you're going through this major drought, of course, as a chief, you're thinking, what do I do? You wage war, you conquer land, your people will, mm-hmm. will be well fed. So I, I'd say there's a, there a digression or a deviation from the, the chief's thinking, how do I make my land sustainable to how do I conquer other people's land? So there was that. Um, of course, the major event uh, was the arrival of Europeans in 1778, starting in 1778, Captain Cook's arrival. Uh, and there's a few kind of key events in that uh, in that process. And so the introduction of uh, invasive species, particularly mm-hmm. ungulates, first goats, uh, then cattle. Um, pigs were brought, but pigs, um, by, the, by the early Polynesian community, pigs... Probably did some modification of the of the low elevation ecosystems, um, and certainly on small islands they can be very destructive. But Hawaii is a big place, and and I, I it, it's hard to say how much uh, damage pigs did. What we do know is that those cattle and the sheep and mm-hmm. excuse me, the cattle, goats, and then later sheep um, just did enormous damage, causing huge amounts of erosion. And again. At the same time, the population is dramatically mm-hmm. decreasing. Right, because those animals like goats or sheep 
cattle are eating the uh, the the buds, the yep. fledgling exactly. native plants. Yep. Yep. Um, later it was deer. And so you have, you know, browsers and grazers and they are exactly, they are eating the juveniles that would grow up. Another um, sad twist to this history is that as economies began to change, there was a desire for sandalwood. And mm -hmm. so sand, what they would do is they would um, bring trade goods from the American, uh, excuse me, from the North American West, uh, particularly around British Columbia. The British would sail down to Hawaii. This is in the early 19th century, um, mostly starting, I think, early, late in the 19th century, late, late in the 19th century, and then the early 19th century, um, ship would um, uh, bring these trade goods to the Hawaiian Islands, and the exchange was for sandalwood. And so mm -hmm. we had vast forests of sandalwood that were cut down. So at different times, every uh, adult male was required to cut down two picune of, of sandalwood. And that equivalent, about equivalent to about 160 pounds. Well, that's felling a whole tree. Yeah. And so it it's this, the, the introduction of, of market economies mm -hmm. and you're benefiting uh you're benefiting a small group of people at the expense of the commoners so really it was kind of a, a paradigmatic shift away from the, the 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 role of the chief being to care for the people now it was the the chiefs actually trying to um uh, you know empower themselves with material possessions mm -hmm. uh, and so the sandalwood forest cut down um you know you see really only in the remotest areas of the islands do you still see sandalwood uh, of the type that were used. There's other species of sandalwoods um, that are smaller, but the big forests of sandalwood largely cut down. And that just led to erosion. The ungulates gave a vector for the ungulates to move in. Uh, and so it was kind of this cascading series of environmental problems. Uh, you know, kind of fast forward and at the same time, the population is dropping. Um, mm -hmm. So Hawaii's population on the eve of uh, contact was the range is quite a bit, but 400 to 600,000. I've seen 600 to 800,000. Some go a little bit higher than that. Some estimates go a little bit higher than that. What we do know that is by the middle of the 19th century, that population had dropped to really around 50,000 individuals. So wow. not only do you have this, you know, environmental degradation, but you also have this, um, what I can only imagine is just profound grief, this profound grief that really, um, probably pervaded the Hawaiian Islands. And you can get a sense of that mm -hmm. from some of the writing. At the same time, they knew that there are these um, colonial powers that were circling the islands. You know, the authors like Samuel Kamakau explicitly write about them being like these sharks in our waters and they're going to gobble us up. And if we don't, you know, if we don't protect ourselves, we're going to be uh, in a series, a whole series of, in, of environmental degradation and loss of land and all these things. So it, it's it's really a, a, an entire book full of things, yeah. but I think you know one of the things talk about shifting paradigms, kind of carrying on in this theme. You had a, a you had a, 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 a an ecological theory that was popular in the late nineteenth century and the early twentieth century called decadence theory, and decadence theory um, proposed that island ecosystems were just really continental ecosystems that were immature. So let's accelerate the process of, of maturing these ecosystems. And so what we'll do is we'll get continental trees and that will make a, uh, so it was that paradigm shift, um, not a, a con literally a continental paradigm. And you just happen to coincide with the development of the airplane. So what they would do is they would load up all these seeds, all these uh, highly aggressive invasive species, um, 
the seeds of these invasive species and fly over in airplanes and dropping them out of uh, out of bags. And, you know, I don't know how widespread that was. I mean, airplanes were still hard to come by, but I think it's more important to say that the, the, the mentality shifted from we are bounded by space, uh, we are bounded by this ocean and that defines our space. And we have to care for the land at all costs to how can I maximize what's beneficial for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, it, it's the exact paradigm um, that, that created the conditions for the destruction of the Persian Gulf and for sure. the, the destruction of the, uh, the oil wells. And so what caused huge amounts of, of uh, sooty discharge into the atmosphere. So the population piece is so important, right? Because what comes with a decimation of a population and of a people is the loss of the knowledge of how yes. to care for the land. Yeah. And I, I really love that you brought up the part about grief yes. because it's overlooked when we look that far back in history yes. and we go, everything's become so politically divided, yes. right? So yes. people go, okay, well, that happened so long ago. Get over it. Let's move on. Yeah. But what you said about the grief part is okay. so important because if you're going from, and we can take some of those low estimates, let's just say 400,000 people to 50,000, yes. that means the remaining 50,000 have lost probably their entire circle. Yes, exactly. And now yeah. they're having to go be a community together with people that they weren't with before and all of them are in such a low place. I just, I'm, it's such a human thing where I'm thinking about it right now here sitting with you. I'm thinking if I lost everyone in my circle yes, and then had to go try to connect with a stranger while I'm in my lowest place, yes, I'm not thinking about how can I preserve the knowledge of my ancestors in that moment. And then once I'm gone, yeah, who's there to preserve it? You're absolutely right. So these demographic shifts not only did not only did uh, the population drop, but you had this major demographic shifts. People, you know, people are obligate gregarious, right? We love yeah. we love being around other people. We get comfort with other people, and so there was this major migration to these population centers, and so um, that shifted things. And y- you you touched on what is called um, ike kupuna. Um, which is ancestral wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so Hawaii being a non-literate society, how information was passed was from one generation to the not- next. So you have these the 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 elders passing on to the, the kupuna, passing it on to the makua, to the parents, and the makua on to the opio, to the, to the children, uh, the young people. And so that loss um, was just devastating. Now, the one saving grace is that uh, literacy, when uh, when the first primers came out, uh, people took to it like crazy. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Hawaii became, by 1893, we were the most literate society in the world. And 1893 is a, is a critical date because that was the year that the Americans overthrew our government. Um, so 1893, with the, with the loss of our kingdom, things have just kind of progressively gone down. Uh, gotten worse for many people, not all mm-hmm. Hawaiians, and and uh, you know there, there certainly are many many well educated, articulate, and and uh, but the the amount of loss is just profound and and left a huge kind of a gaping wound in the both in the national psyche as as well as the the ability to recover and how mm-hmm. to practice now so you you my point with the 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 literacy is that you have 
significant amounts of it being captured because they have all these newspapers. There are over a hundred Hawaiian language newspapers that were published. And the last one really only stopped publication into the 1950s. Mm. And so you had, you had some preservation. And so that's the, the one saving grace is, uh, you know, of course, Hawaiians have always been uh, interested in knowledge. Knowledge is what saves you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and knowledge is what is what creates the paradigm that allows you to thrive. And so that is a really critical aspect. Sustainability is going to be key to mm-hmm. so many of our communities moving forward. Right. And being able to come together as a community, work together locally for food security. Yep. And, and we can't have food security if our ecosystems aren't um, healthy and so on and so forth. So all these things have this domino effect. Yes. Can you take us through a couple of sustainability things that the Hawaiians were doing Mm -hmm. previously that now you're trying to implement back in? Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, I'll just give two examples that just from my own experience. So uh, at Waihei, uh, you've heard me talk about fish ponds. Um, So we have a fish pond. It's a kind of a, not a unique type of fish pond, but it's, it's not they're not particularly common, and it's a type known as a loko ia kalo. And uh, loko ia just means fish pond, so that kind of establishes what it is. But the uh, the suffix kalo uh, just refers to taro. Mm. So it's a literally a freshwater system that is raising marine fish for the most part. And so this is, you know, how Hawaiian science is conducted is is primarily through what is known as kilo, observation. So it's really observational science at the core of it. And so what what, uh, the fish pond, this local Iakalo relied on, and this is a fish pond at Waihei on our property that was built in... Uh, around 1500, 1550, okay. perhaps just a little bit later. We're going by genealog- genealogical um, uh, timing. So, you know, the, the dates can be a little bit imprecise. Uh, the fish pond, you know, of course, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a seven acre system, but bringing water in from the, from the stream from about a mile away. So in what's known as an awai, which is an aqueduct. So bringing from about a mile away into this fish pond system, bringing probably somewhere between a million and three million gallons a day, but starting at, at what, what's called the po'ovai at about um, four to six million gallons a day. Well, what it's doing is it's watering all the taro patches along that corridor intentionally. And then the, what remains of that water is coming in. So we are, it comes into the, the fish pond and you use that water to raise your, your, uh, your taro and also the fish. Now, Kilo at work, uh, Hawaiian observational science at work, realized that if you look in estuaries all over the islands, if you look mm-hmm. in freshwater estuaries, you'll see the whole spectrum of nearshore marine fish. Uh, and so it was just this observational realization that, look, there are marine fish in this freshwater system. That means that if I get them in, and generally it's if you get them in young enough, you can actually raise freshwater fish in a, excuse me, marine fish, saltwater fish in a marine system. Now, then you have, that opens up all kinds of possibilities because of course there's that nutrient exchange that that the fish are bringing in, they're bringing the nutrients in, and then you can actually raise your taro as well. And the taro, you have to have some uh, mechanism, some strategy to prevent 
because they're all connected to the ocean mm-hmm. to prevent uh, marine inundation at the tidal changes twice a day. So what we're doing is we're rebuilding this fish pond in Waihei, which is a seven acre, we call it the Kapoho fish pond or Kapoho Loko Yakalo. You have to have some kind of method to bring water uh, into the, you know, fresh water in, but at the exit point, what's known as the uh, the Awaioka Makaha, uh, you have to have the water just a little bit higher so it cascades down so that the salt water doesn't go into that system and um, cause damage to your tarot. Mm-hmm. It's, as, as we're opening up, my my colleague, uh, Kia'i Collier, is re- actually in the process of rebuilding this. this is, to, to my knowledge, there's no other uh, local Kia'akalo in Hawaii, and we're the only ones rebuilding it. And so it's just this subtle, it, it's, it's incredibly subtle. You look at it and you're like, what is going on? But we realize, okay, what they're doing is they're diverting the salt water off to uh, one side, and that permits the fresh water to re- flow out. And so you're not getting that inundation. And so, wow. it's just, so again, it's very, very subtle. You also have to know your varieties of taro. So when the first people arrived here, they brought with them four to six varieties of, of taro, somewhere around there. That's that's the general consensus. But now there are, uh, by by really 1778, there were somewhere around, you know, two or 300 varieties, probably more than that, probably significantly more than that. They're trying to right now work through what, because sometimes people name them different things in different locations. You know, a name on Kauai, which is far away from Maui, would have been uh, a different name, but there would have probably been the same variety to just get dispersed. Anyway, that is a perfect example. Now, again, I mentioned, let's just say hypothetically, uh, in a seven-acre system, per acre, you can uh, harvest 25,000 pounds annually. Well, let's cut that in half. That means mm-hmm. 12,500 pounds times seven acres. Um, just cut that in half because you're you're using it for both fish and taro. Um, that is a lot yeah. of taro. Yeah. That is, you know, seven acres yeah. times times twelve thousand. You know, you're looking at well over eighty thousand pounds of taro annually in just that in just that system. I'm not saying anything about where the others how what the other systems were producing. Likewise, if you cut it down to half and say there was probably a hundred pounds of fish coming out of each acre, that's a lot of fish. Yeah. So it was really, these fish ponds were really Aina So what we're doing, what our goal is, is to develop the, rebuild this fish pond uh, and get the community involved. So we know how to do what's known as uhau humupohaku, the, the rebuilding the rock wall. Mm-hmm. So that's one example. Second one is just kind of, as I mentioned earlier, um, kind of my, my, my love of ulu or breadfruit farming. And so we're trying to, as much as we can, replicate practices that are kupuna that they actually used in these um uh, ulu systems in these um breadfruit systems so for example we used early on we used rock mulching rock mulching is uh, a practice that uh, rocks are known to absorb heat but also if you look beneath the rocks they also retain moisture so i my farm in a relatively dry area of maui and so we use rock mulching lots of rocks out there and we put them around the base of the tree and that um helped to facilitate their uh, uh, their growth because that moisture was captured and they weren't dealing with as much heat because the yeah. rocks are absorbing the heat, not the tree and not the soil. So it was a, uh, you know, we, we have the farm planted with kukui because kukui was known to be a really great mulch. So what you mulch with is kukui. And so that's, you know, just too small. Yeah. I mean, it's the, I'm also, um, 
so a, a study conducted in um, Palau, uh, the Republic of Palau, um, noticed or they, they recorded a 90% reduction in sediment turbidity, turbidity in the stream if they go through um, these taro patches, lolo'i kalo. So as, you know, they imagine a river and then there's a diversion from that river and it's feeding the taro patches. They go through, water goes through there. When it goes back either into the ocean or back into the stream, it its turbidity, its sediment load has reduced by 90%. Wow. Which is really amazing. That mm-hmm. protects your nearshore marine ecosystems. So it's just these this whole web, this whole network of practices that we can recover and the information is out there. It's not been entirely lost. And what gaps there are, we can probably do our best to figure it out. There's amazing researchers at the University of Hawaii and elsewhere who are really kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle back together, mm-hmm. asking the question, how can we live sustainably? And in my view, at least, the answer is adopt the paradigm and the practices of our kupuna, and you'll be much better off. Now, I'm not saying, you know, abandon everything. You know, it's, it's, it's right. a, we live in a hybrid society, right? We can't just abandon everything. As yeah. throw, you know, you want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, metaphorically. What you want to do is you want to try and take the best. And so that's a process mm-hmm. that I refer to as retrieval, critique, and transformation. So you mm-hmm. go back into your history, you pull it out, and you say, wow, what was so valuable about our, our, our kupuna, their practices? How, what can we learn? And you critique it by actually saying, well, how does it fit into our current society? How do we actually um, better address these uh, these challenges that we're facing? Now, of course, you're not going to find things like, oh, here's what you do if you have an access to your problem. Here's what you do if you have a cattle, you know, if your cattle are overgrazing and causing erosion. That, you know, But there are, there were challenges that our kupuna faced that they overcame. Mm-hmm. Um and so really it, it's those things, retrieval, critique, and, and then of course transformation is kind of synthesizing the, the past knowledge with the current challenges what we have and how can you um, synthesize them. And so that's, yeah, cr- retrieval, critique, and transformation is what I refer to it as. And there's just so much there. There really is. Uh, and remind me what the word was for observation. Kilo. Kilo. K-I-L-O. Yeah. Kilo. Kilo. Yeah. If there's one, I mean, there's so much that I pulled out from this episode, right? But if it kilo in our local communities, if we can all just start observing a little Absolutely. bit more, yeah. the answers are are there. Absolutely. And so, you know, what as we live in, because we are humans and we live in communities, um, what I value so much is that, look, conflict with our within our communities is inevitable. It's mm-hmm. going to happen, right? But you have this strategy known as ho'oponopono, uh, literally setting things right, that has a very elaborate method for maintaining close relationships. Um, so that's ho'oponopono. Ho'oponopono is a, a practice. There's, you know, nothing new under the sun, right? There, mm-hmm. There's nothing absolutely unique about ho'oponopono. It's just done in a way that really works uh, to advance the sustainability of, of a community. Because when conflicts arise, you have a mechanism to address them. So, you know, what what I always like to think about is the fact that Initially, like when I was doing my, my graduate work, I looked at Ho'oponopono as a conflict resolution technique. Actually, in reality, I think Ho'oponopono, or, or another way of looking at it, I should say, is as a famine reduction strategy. You know, mm. if, every, if every place in the Hawaiian Islands is subject to drought every 21 years, that's just, you know, that's pretty much across the board, it's a fact. Some places are affected much worse than others. 
But if you don't have good relations with your ohana who live in a different part of the moku, now generally you were, you know, you were, your mo, your ahupua is what you relied on. But of course you had family. And from a practical standpoint, if the practices that you, if, if you were practicing good care for your land and it just happened to befall you that you were, um, uh, struck with this drought and that drought was causing famine, of course your family is going to step in. They're not just going to look at you and say, sorry, you're on your own. So this whole ponopono is a way of maintaining the relationships that really sustain us. Uh, relationships, and this is what I want to emphasize, I think more than anything, what is sustainability in the Hawaiian Islands? It's strong relationships, relationship mm -hmm. to the land, relationship to your community. And so in, in traditional Hawaiian thought, you had a what I call a, a tripartite relationship, and that was akua aumakua, uh, which is you know gods and the deities. Uh, your aumakua were generally manifested uh, in, in bodily form as uh, natural features, you know, birds, sharks, geckos, or mo'o more specifically, not really geckos, um, but these these water deities. Um, you had a whole spectrum of, of relationships in the spiritual realm, but that was reflected in your relationship to your land. And that was reflected in your relationship with your family and your broader community, your larger community. So that is, so that is a, a three-way relationship. And in traditional Hawaii, it went aina, commoners, makainana, and ali'i. And so that three-way relationship. So it's really two tripartite relationships. And that's my concept. That's, that mm -hmm. was not, not a Hawaiian concept, but that's the way that I've kind of um, digested and made sense of this information is that it's a three-way relationship that goes between aina, akua uh, almakua, and, and um, humans, kane. So, so kanaka. Thank you so much for kind of taking us through not just the environmental sustainability piece, mm -hmm. but also the human to human, like mm -hmm. sustaining mm -hmm. the yeah. relationships. Yeah. Because these, these topics, unfortunately, become politicized, yeah. uh, whether it be for uh, industry mm -hmm. or whether it be for political gain or power or money yeah. that divide our communities when ideas like sustainability or caring for the land shouldn't be about greater money yeah. <laughs> because we're going to have much bigger problems to fight about if, exactly. we, if we're not taking yeah. care of that. Um, so thank you for tying, I guess, the humanity into the environmental. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, one more, two more questions, but I, I wanted to talk about the Central Valley here in Maui hmm. and kind of tie that into what is a natural natural cycle mm -hmm. and what is climate change sure yeah because and, and correct me if i'm wrong but eventually that central valley is going to be underwater one way or another potentially yeah i mean the high whether that's the, 100 or 200 years or yeah I, I, the the entire central central valley the the, the lowest point um i think is something like uh 60 or 80 feet um, something like that. So may not be underwater. I mean, that would be, I guess it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's, that would be in a very, very extreme, that would be almost um, callous and abusive to our planet, which right now you're not too far away. Really, it's hard to predict right now. Uh, we know that by the end of the century that the, the wetlands that I'm referring to where the fish pond is, is likely to turn into a um, freshwater embayment. Um, so what we're always looking at 
trying to understand is, okay, how can we anticipate the changes? And in anticipating the changes, how can you look to the past? So mm-hmm. um, I did a, a, a postdoc um, sort of a research fellowship at the University of Leicester in England, really looking at the paleoecology. And so paleoecology is really what is the historical ecology of an area. And so um, what I wanted to, what I was particularly interested in is how does the, um, the landscape change over time and what is driving those changes? And it's pretty clear in, you know, so we, we, we can see right about the time that humans arrive and they brought the, uh, the Pacific rat, the ratus exulans, and that did some significant damage, significant, uh, modification to the ecosystem for a variety of reasons, um, and changed the, changed the dynamic. So you're looking at all these changes over time. And so I think, again, by looking to the past, you can really get a sense of what will be in the future. Um, so how do we, I think the question really is, how do we live sus- sustainably? You know, mm-hmm. how are we going to live Pono, how are we going to live in balance, right? That was a big question when the when the monarchy was overthrown. The question everybody asking was, uh, how, how are we to live in balance when our government is no longer uh, representing us as the, the Kanaka Maoli, as the, as the Hawaiian people, I think we could ask the same question now. And, and that, you know, there's no Hawaiian word for sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I see in the word pono um, is that sense of balance and reciprocity that I give, I take, I give, I take. Um, what the future holds, I'm still an optimist. Uh, I'm, I'm still very much an optimist, um, but that optimism has to be tempered with, Hey, there's actual real work to do. Um, I'm, I, I'm, my project in Kaupo at Nu'u is, um, to try and see how we can actually, uh, design a forest to stop, uh, or to mitigate at least as much as possible coastal inundation, particularly from tsunamis. Hawaii mm-hmm. is particularly vulnerable to to tsunamis. So how can we, but that is our trees, our native trees, uh, native and, and Polynesian introduced trees that are being used, that are being put to service. And so just since uh, it's March right now, excuse me, it's February right now, um, between November and what we anticipate in March, we'll plant somewhere over 300 uh, native trees. And so that's getting back to how can our our la'au kupuna, our ancestral trees, help us to mm-hmm. um, care for this land as well. So uh, I, I hope that we can depoliticize things because it's not really a political issue. Yeah, right. in in the minutia, in the very short term, it's a it's a political issue. But it's sort of like again, getting back to the idea, like we're on an island. You know, yeah. we have to care for things. There, one one thing, one of the things that I really love when I teach my classes, I look at examples throughout the Pacific where they made these dramatic. What were for them? Maybe for not for uh, dramatic for us, mm-hmm. but were for them these dramatic course corrections that actually promoted sustainability. Perfect example is uh, what's called a Polynesian outlier. It's in, the, it's in Melanesia, Ge- geographically it's in Melanesia, but it's a small Polynesian island called Tikopia. And Tikopia is remarkable because the status symbol of Tikopia was pigs like it okay. is throughout much of, the, mm-hmm. much of the Pacific. If you have pigs, you have wealth. I mean, that is your, you know, get, pick your status symbol. Um, that is it. You know, you're, that's your BMW, that's your whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, and yet, 
they noticed that the pigs, this is a very small island, by the way, um, they noticed that the pigs were having a dramatic adverse impact on the ecosystems. And so they got rid of them. Wow. They com- just got, com- I mean, they killed them. Right, <laughs> they didn't, right. just, didn't send them off. <laughs> yeah. but they, 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 they got rid of their pigs, which is a, I think it's, it's hard to understate how powerful that is. And I'm hopeful that if other people, you know, these are not our direct ancestors, but I mean, at least in, mm-hmm. in Hawaiian, in Hawaii, um, but they are, are, you know, paradigmatic ancestors. Yeah. They, they're the ones who have held on to that island paradigm because it's such a small island. They have, you have to do these things. Mm-hmm. And when we realize that we are really on a small island called earth Mm -hmm. um we have to take dramatic course corrections and i'm hopeful that will happen it's predicated on our ability to adopt an island paradigm Mm -hmm. and what that's going to look like is going to is going to vary from place to place my last question for you today is if you could sit down with anybody living or dead and have a conversation like we had today who would you love to sit down with that's a really great question I'm going to cheat a little bit and give you three people. That's that's great. <laughs> okay. Okay. The first the first person I like to talk to is basically the 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 voyaging captain, the the voyager who first set off from Hawaii mm. and, and first set off for Hawaii. Maybe didn't know there's going to where they were going to arrive. <clears throat> and I would like to know what what was their vision? What did they see? Mm-hmm. Are, and, and how consistent are we as a society with their vision? Because that's really what I want to know. I want to know, have I lived up to what my kupuna have handed down to me from generations? Second person is Maili Kukahi. You know, here's a person who, uh, as he, he's the one who developed the Moku Ahupua'a mm-hmm. system. And I would like to know from Maili Kukahi how he came up with this brilliant idea first of all, but how he saw that vision. What do you see 200, 300, 400 years into the future with the Ahupua'a, with the Moku Ahupua'a system? What, what, what do you see and what gave you the insight to say that's what we need to do? So that's my second one. And the third one, I guess, for a non-Hawaiian um, uh, dimension would be uh, the Dalai Lama, living person. Because mm. um, he speaks so eloquently about our need to, to practice compassion and compassion for the environment is of course built into that. So the Dalai Lama is really an inspirational, there's lots of inspirational people, but the Dalai Lama for me is very inspirational because he has this uh, kind of unending uh, capacity for compassion. And that's really what we need for the earth. So compassion for one another and compassion for the earth as well. So it's a, it's a value that I try to live live to and you know with varying degrees of success but anyway that's that's that would be my three candidates thank you so much for sharing everything you did today um and the just the history and the the culture piece i think is we don't get enough of it and so i thank you for sharing that with me and, and with all our listeners oh you're welcome i really enjoy this rebecca thank you thank you Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. 
Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.